This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Definitely talking about the energy sector today. Investors keeping an eye on the energy names. This is Bloomberg News reports exclusively that D.E. Shaw has urged Anadarko Petroleum to run an open sales process amid two interested parties. And we also got some shocking earnings news from ExxonMobil. And we've also got earnings from Chevron. But what we really cared about was Chevron's pursuit of Anadarko, which sounds like they're kind of moving ahead despite that competing and higher offer Vince from Occidental Petroleum. Yeah, and, and w- there was some talk on the call this morning. People thought perhaps they would address it and, and raise their bid a little bit. Um, not really. Not yet, and right? Not yet, and they're going ahead as if the, the oxy bid doesn't exist. All right, so let's get into this. Ed Hammond is deals reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York along with Fernando Valley. He's oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Ed, I'm going to start with you. Uh, D.E. Shaw, you guys broke it. Uh, great story. Um, tell us... D.E. Shaw, um, what they're asking Anadarko to do. They want more offers to come in, essentially, it sounds like. Yeah, that's absolutely right. They're, they're asking him two things, really. One, they're saying, we think you behaved badly in the, in the build-up to the deal with Chevron. I, you didn't sufficiently engage with Oxy. You didn't take their bid seriously. And there was potentially even some shenanigans around this change of pay right towards the end of the, uh, of the process. So they're saying, look, we want you to behave better, run an open process, be transparent, and don't increase the break fee and put hurdles in for whoever comes in next. And then they're also saying, look, you have a better offer on the table from Oxy at 76 bucks a share. You should probably declare that one superior and then see what Chevron do afterwards. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Fernando, come on in on this. We did hear from ExxonMobil. We'll talk about their earnings in a second because certainly a surprise Chevron too, but doesn't look like they're up in their bid. It doesn't look like that right now, Carol. It, they, they talked about the bid and said that Anadarko actually preferred the lower equity component because of the stronger Chevron share. And when you do look at the, the fundamentals of both companies, Oxy and uh, Chevron and what they would look after a merger, uh, the leverage at Chevron would be much, much lower. So it is a very, very much a, a stronger balance sheet that will give you a better uh, uh, successor. And also, there are uh, significant synergies with Chevron as well, the overlapping acreage. Chevron owns some of the mineral rights uh, where Anadarko operates. So to us, it seems like they're understating the synergies targets that they said. They said $2 billion uh, versus 3.5 from Oxy. And when you look at all the overlap that they have, not only in the Permian, but Gulf of Mexico and then the LNG component as well, those synergies probably are higher with Chevron. They're probably just being understated as it stands. And, and uh, you, Fernando, you make a very good point that I, this is... Yeah, 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 yeah Ed, come on in ahead. on this, because I was going to say, Ed, we talked about this this morning on TV. Right. And I think the debt point is an interesting one. Look, I think Chevron is obviously one of the biggest companies in the world. They could absorb this much more easily than Oxy. That said, Oxy has, it's a very good credit. It has pretty low debt at the moment, pretty low ratio. And even with this deal, as it stands, the 50-50 cash and stock deal, they'd only be at 3.5 times EBITDA. And they're saying they could get it down to where it is today by 2021. So it's, yes, relative to Chevron, they would have a, a slightly more, um, you know, under pressure balance sheet, but it's by no means a, a huge stretch for, a, for an M&A situation. It doesn't sound like it's a game changer, Ed. No, and, and, it, and it's something I think their shareholders 
if you look at the reaction in Oxy stock over the last few days, their shareholders seem to be getting more comfortable, both, I think, with the fact that if the deal does go through for Oxy, they will be able to absorb it from a sort of uh, from a corporate finance point of view, but also with the synergy numbers that Oxy's put out, which, uh, which you just pointed out, are, are slightly more aggressive than Chevron's. Ed, that being said, Chevron's... Uh, playing the game this morning as if the deal doesn't exist. I mean, they're they're the on on the call. They said they're confident of uh, the complexity of the deal. Has they begun joint integration planning? Um, what's that yeah. all about? Well, I, I think this is what they have to do. Um, it's not really their move to make to come back with the higher offer at the moment. I think they need Anna Darko to come out with a statement at some point, probably early next week, um, which everyone expects will be a declaration of Oxy as a superior offer. At that point. Chevron, I'm sure, will have a plan in mind for what they're going to do. And the big question the market has is, do they actually put an offer on the table that is better and more absolute dollar value than the Oxy offer? Or do they say, look, we underbid them and won before, we can do it again. And they go and say, 73 50 74 bucks and try and get it done again. I think if that happens, you are going to see the mother of all scraps over corporate governance. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Fernando, c- come on in. I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I don't think they have to raise their bid as it stands. They they have the superior equity, as they would they would term it, a, a strong a strong currency in the, the Chevron stock. And, and that was reflected by the earnings today. You know, it was very weak. Uh, refining and chemicals period and these guys still churned out free cash flow and we saw how difficult that is uh, for a company that's uh, you know 70, 25% larger in ExxonMobil uh, that couldn't generate free cash flow even though they have uh, you know 25% higher production. Uh, it just speaks volumes to Chevron's ability to execute on their plans over the past 10 years, and I think that will bode well for as they, they look to, to consolidate this deal. What happened with ExxonMobil? I just got to go there for a second. It's down about 3%, but it, it just you know dropped like a rock as soon as that earnings release came out. Well, to be fair, they tried to call everyone's attention to it. And in, in, in earlier um, this, in the first quarter, they warned that their earnings, particularly in the downstream, are going to be a lot weaker. They said the crude differentials in North America narrowed significantly, which we all saw. Canada, uh, the Midland cushion differential in the Permian Basin, also other shale basins, they narrowed significantly. Right. And that led to their uh, downstream earnings falling from um, from uh, about $2.7 billion to $260 million. And that was a big delta in, every, in their earnings. Ed, I want to go back to you. Final word. Um, what are we expecting on this M&A front with Anadarko uh, next week? Just got about 20 seconds here. I still think Chevron has a balance sheet to, to, to raise their bid and uh, to, to actually go through with this deal. They have the better synergies. I think it just makes more sense uh, to have Anadarko as part of Chevron than Noxy. Ed, saved to 15 sec- seconds. I'm going to go contrarian. I think, look, next move is Anadarko. They're going to come out. They're going to declare Oxy's superior bid. I think at that point, Chevron walks away and they say, look, we wanted it, but we're a disciplined acquirer. We didn't need it. And we're still a good credit. Love it. This is a great story. It ain't over yet. Ed Hammond, thank you so much. Deals reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York. Check him out on Twitter at Ed Hammond, New York. And of course, Fernando Valle, oil and gas analyst, our thanks to you as well. Bloomberg Intelligence uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Lots going on when it comes to energy. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Like another perfect day. We're going to head out to L.A. In fact, I'm going to head out to L.A. in Beverly Hills. Uh, This story, by the way, among our most read, it talks about the gathering of bankers, politicians, entertainment moguls, pro athletes, 
and so much more. It's about to get underway on the West Coast. The Milken Global Conference starts this weekend, and Jason and I will be there uh, along with members of our Bloomberg News team. Richard Dizio is president of the Milken Institute. He joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, Richard, nice to have some time with you. Uh, I know it's busy. Your team has been out there in full force. We've been working with them. Tell us a little bit about, for folks who may not know about Milken, we certainly know about it, but tell us a little bit about what the mission is. So the mission of, of this conference is really to bring people together in a nonpartisan way where they can have an active dialogue and tackle some of the vexing issues on the planet. So while we tend to focus a bit on financial markets, there are also tracks on education, philanthropy, regions of the world, and aging. So issues that uh, afflict the planet all over, and we're bringing people that have both the capital and intellect and ability oftentimes to get things done. Richard, this sounds just so fascinating. I mean, it almost sounds like you're going to solve world peace. Uh, What... Uh, what are some of the initiatives that maybe have come out of past uh, Milken um, conferences that have been enacted around the world that have um, that been really positive? I think one of our particular areas of focus is aging. So if you think about how rapidly aging populations around the world are impacting the financing of those, uh, retirement wasn't meant to be 40 or 50 years. So <clears throat> all the advances in healthcare that have allowed people to live longer, healthier lives actually wreak some havoc on existing retirement schemes around the world. So we spend a lot of time strategizing with uh, financial infrastructure ideas about how are we going to pay for this as people live longer lives, and what are we going to do with all the youth um, in the world as technology starts to displace traditional jobs. I do love, too, that your main theme is driving shared prosperity, and I think this is something that we talk an awful lot about here at Bloomberg, that there are some folks, certainly coming off of the financial crisis, that have done very, very well, and there are a lot of folks that are not. And even if we say the job market's tight, the economy, not great, but it's doing okay, there are some people that don't feel like it's okay, and they don't have a job. So I like this idea and this concept uh, and this theme of this whole idea of you know, prosperity for more, really. Great. And one of the things that I'm particularly excited about at the conference is our equality track, Mm -hmm. because in so many parts of the world, women are not actively participating in the economy. And if you just think about how additive to GDP globally, incorporating 50% of the population might be. So we have a number of sessions that will focus on uh, diversity and inclusion efforts uh, through industry, uh, through governments, etc. So we're really trying to be a catalyst towards coming up with a framework that allows more people to participate in the global economy. And, and I assume income equality has a lot to do with that as well, and like try to find solutions. I mean, you know, to some extent, it almost seems like a, a very clear, easy problem for a major corporation when they look at men and women not being paid the same. You know, why? And, and if you know what the problem is, it should be relatively easy to fix. Are there solutions that, you know, you guys can offer to help uh, help companies down the road or maybe twist a little arm here and there? I mean, one of the things we're trying to do is, uh, given the amount of capital that attends the conference, there's some $25 trillion that various managers are controlling. If we can get them to activate those funds towards more ESG initiatives, including gender, and I think today, on, from the investment landscape, um, using gender as a screen from both the board as well as senior management participation isn't just a good idea. There's demonstrable evidence that more diverse boards yield better financial results. 
So people who are the stewards of these large pools of capital actually have a fiduciary responsibility to generate higher returns, and you do so by being more inclusive. Richard, the other thing is, you know, we've had some guests on, the, the importance of being able to have civil conversations, right? There are people who feel very strongly about subjects, uh, you know, and have opposing points of view, and I feel like we've been in this world increasingly where people cannot have a civil conversation about something, and I really do feel like that's what you folks are all about. We are, and I think that is part of the magic of the conference, and not only in the individual panels where you're seated next to one another, but even at the lunches and mm-hmm. some of the more social engagements, where when you're seated next to a person that might have a philosophically different take than you do, uh, it's easier to hate them in the abstract, but once you sit next to each other and you realize you have a lot of commonalities, you've got children, they've got children, etc., you kind of diffuse a little bit of the animosity, and yeah. you can let people focus on the humanity. It's a great point. Uh, looking forward to it. I've got a couple panels I'll be doing with you with you folks, so really looking forward to it. Richard, thank you so much. Richard Dizio, he's president of the Milken Institute, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now, shares of Starbucks, Vince, something we're watching. Little changed, I think, in today's trade, but yeah, this is much. after, right? It's yeah. up about two cents, 17 cents or so. No big deal. All right, so it posted solid growth in the U.S. and China. Uh, a lot of changes... New CEO, uh, Kevin Johnson. Bloomberg Television's David Weston caught up with the Starbucks CEO earlier, and they began by talking about specifically that solid growth in the U.S. and China that came out in their report. Listen up. You know, this quarter in China, we grew our store footprint by 17%. You know, and we're on a path to build 600 new stores in China every year. And uh, of, the, of the growth that we've seen in new stores, those new stores are performing uh, financially you know, better than, than prior generations. So great reception to the new store growth. But in addition, our same store comparable in China accelerated and grew at a 3% annual basis. So we're super pleased with the fact that we're seeing uh, continued uh, comp growth in our existing stores. Uh, but And then you complement that with a 17% in new store growth uh, in China. Uh, the total transaction growth that we're seeing is, is significant. And so we're very pleased with that. Imitation is a form of flattery. You have a competitor in China now, Luckin. How is that affecting your business? How do you expect it to affect it going forward, particularly on margins? Well, you know, David, we've, we've uh, always had many competitors since Starbucks was founded 48 years ago. And, you know, now we are at uh, over 30,000 stores globally. We've always had a lot of competitors. And certainly China is no exception to that. The fact that there's a large and growing addressable market for coffee in China means that we expect more competitors to come into that market. Uh, you know, certainly for Starbucks, we, we've been in China for 20 years. And we really understand what makes uh, a differentiated experience. The combination of what we do in our stores, the quality of our coffees, the handcrafted nature of our beverages that are personalized to our customers, and the connection that our Starbucks partners make with customers is very important. Uh, You put all of that together, we've now extended that experience in our stores to a digital mobile relationship. Uh, You recall we signed uh, a China digital partnership agreement with Alibaba uh, that was announced last August. And so the digital reach that we're getting in China is significant as that partnership continues to expand. So, you know, we feel very good about the experience we're creating in our stores, the performance of those stores, same store comparable, and the digital reach that we get in China. So, uh, you know, I think we're well positioned for long-term growth in that market. Uh, We don't hear as much about Europe. Uh, Tell us about the Nestle distribution deal. How's that coming? Yeah, our uh, global coffee alliance with Nestle is uh, is a significant one because it brings the Starbucks brand 
to food services, to CPG channels, and it brings Starbucks coffee on the Nespresso and Dolce Gusto platforms. Uh, just uh, in March, uh, we announced the first 24 Starbucks SKUs on the Nespresso, Dolce Gusto platforms. And uh, Nestle, in this first wave, is now bringing Starbucks to 16 new markets around the world. Uh, that, will, uh, that will unfold through September. And then in the next wave, we're going to another 31 new markets. Nestle's significant. They've got 5 million points of presence in you know, just about every market in the world. And so our partnership with them is really anchored around coffee. It's anchored around a common set of values. And uh, it is really leveraging the, uh, the Nestle uh, reach and the strength to bring Starbucks uh, coffee uh, to retailers, mass merchants, food services, and on uh, the world's most popular single-serve platforms with Nespresso. So, so Kevin, finally, I mean, you've got a remarkable position there as head of Starbucks. It strikes me that there's one thing that's almost unique about you, which is that you have a predecessor who's thinking about running for president. I'm not going to ask you to endorse or not endorse anybody, but from when your experiences of running Starbucks and knowing Howard Schultz pretty well, uh, what qualities does a CEO have that might actually help in the White House? Well, look, I, I, Howard transitioned from, from Starbucks uh, last year, as you pointed out, David, and, uh, you know, my focus, the leadership team here at Starbucks, we're staying very focused on, on running the business of Starbucks. We're very pleased with this quarter, and, you know, as, uh, as, as the United States gets into this uh, presidential uh, cycle, you know, we, we've been pretty clear that, you know, we stay focused on the business of Starbucks, and we'll let, uh, we'll let citizens comment on who, who they think ought to be president and why. All right. So a little bit uh, not saying, you know, what might happen in terms of the presidential race, but a lot about their business and particularly uh, some of what they're doing overseas and in China. Mike Halen uh, knows a lot about uh, this company. He's senior restaurant analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins Vince and myself right now on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Hey, Mike, you were listening in. Uh, Starbucks shares, they're just up about four tenths of a percent here. Um, what was interesting about that conversation and also uh, the company's release today? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, I think what's really important here is is that the restructuring that management did back in 2018 has really freed them up uh, to focus on improving results in, in its two key markets, you know, the U.S. and China. I, I think that's really what we can, uh, you know, glean from this report and, and Kevin Johnson's interview. I think he's done a nice job uh, since coming on, you know, kind of selling off some businesses and, um, licensing um, the CPG business to Nestle so that they could really focus on these two markets, focus on the operations there, uh, improve the digital experience, and leverage the, the superior technology that they, that they have um, to give customers a better in-store experience and, um, you know, basically spend more money in their stores, right? Well, and, and that's the key, right? I mean, the, the price point's going up, and that's why the profits are up, not necessarily sales. Yeah, so transactions are, are pretty much flat. They saw a little bit of uh, transaction growth here in the United States, um, a, a very little bit, less than you know um, a half a percent. But um, yeah, it's mainly on pricing. So they're trading uh, customers up to higher price beverages. Um, they're also um, attachment rates of food um, to their beverages have been pretty good. So um, yeah, it's mainly been about uh, increasing ticket. So, you know, we'd like to see them uh, increase traffic. You know, that's a, a very good indicator of health. Uh, but when, you know, in the U.S., the same-store sales were up 4%, um, 2% on pricing and 2% on mix. So so that's really 
uh, nothing to shake a stick at. So uh, on that note, and I know this is like the classic joke, there's a Starbucks on every corner. Is there a saturation point in the United States? I know they're trying to expand worldwide, obviously in China, but in expansion in the U.S., um, is it really, uh, is the best case basis the rewards program, different drinks, because essentially how many more stores can you put out there? Yeah, they're they're going to get to that point at some at some point in the future. We don't know exactly when. Um, I'm not sure management has put a number on that uh, in terms of U.S. white space. Um, but when same store sales are ri- rising mid single digits, which we think uh, is pretty achievable here in 2019, uh, that signifies that there's pretty much um, some more room for growth here. And in terms of China, this is obviously an important market. You know, Vince and I were talking, wow, I didn't realize they had been in China for so long. But this is where you see, right, the China and the Asia-Pacific region, Mike, that's where you've really seen an awful lot of growth over the last few years. Yeah, this is where a large, you know, more than 50% of the net unit growth is coming from now is from China and Asia-Pacific. And, and China, um, you know, is, is six expected to be about 600 net units this year uh, versus 2,100 uh, mm. system-wide. So, yeah, a lot of growth here. Um, you know, consumers in China are, are um, you know, consuming a lot more coffee now than they have been, you know, even a few years ago. Um, and so far, it looks like there's room for a few different competitors, right? Look, yeah. and, you know, there's been a lot of... Um, a, a lot, lot of naysayers who said there that. wasn't, right? Excuse me? A lot of naysayers who said there, wa- there wasn't enough y- room. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, caffeine is addictive. Coffee's addictive. So, <laughs> so, I could you know, use some right now. <laughs> so listen, it's, it's a high margin business that people get yeah. addicted to. Listen, coffee's a, a wonderful business to be in. <laughs> All right. Mike Hallen, thank you as always. He's Senior re- Restaurant Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Love talking with him. He's on the phone from our BI headquarters in Princeton. As we mentioned, shares of Starbucks just up about a quarter of 1%. They are up 20%, though, in 2019. So it's time for our weekly look at the world of venture capital. This story really caught our attention. It's about the reality TV star who is now providing funding for startups in return for a piece of its sales. It's really a fascinating story. You and I talked about this earlier, Vince. Yeah, it's, and it's actually quite a large piece, to be honest. <laughs> this is uh, this reminds me of the loan sharking business, basically, back in the Bronx. <laughs> Well, it's a fair. It's a big, sizable. It's, chunk it's a of size money. chunk, but it's you know to, to be fair, it is it is the proper venture capital type yeah. uh, chunk. So I'm I'm obviously exaggerating. So th- this is typical of what uh, people do lend to startups because they can't raise cash anywhere else. Exactly. It's a it's a bit it's a bigger fee than they're accustomed to. So let's get into the story. Paula Sambo is a Canada corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Toronto uh, from our Toronto bureau. Paula, nice to have you here. It really did catch our attention. Uh, tell us a little bit about. Um, who we're talking about, what they're up to, uh, and uh, yeah, get into your story for us. Uh, hi, good afternoon, Carol and Vince. Uh, it's really a fascinating story, so it really caught my attention as well. Uh, so this reality TV star, uh, which stars in the Dragon's Den, which is a Canadian version of Shark Tank, said that after hearing so many pitches from so many startups that asking for money, but probably would, that wouldn't really going to get it or it wasn't the best fit for them getting either equity or debt. And she came up with the idea of, you know, giving them money for a share of their revenue. And in this way, the startup wouldn't have to, you know, uh, give them a piece of the equity that could be worth a lot in the future and would therefore be bad for the startup and also wouldn't be in a huge pile of debt too. So they thought this idea of 
what's something that would make sense for a lot of these startups. Right. So you avoid yeah. so you avoid debt, you avoid giving up ownership, right? You just mm-hmm. have to give up a piece of future sales. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and to be fair, when I was talking about fees, and, and I honestly can't say that this is necessarily the case of today or has it changed, but the initial... Um, the initial business model of Shark Tank is when people go up there, whether they whether they pitch and, and get money or not, 5% of their company goes back to the producer. So right off the top, there's a 5% fee. In this structure, there's somewhere between 6 to 12.5%, and they take as much of a fifth of the monthly revenue until everything is paid back. But it says if the company fails to meet revenue and expectations – the lender walks away. What what time frame is that? I wonder. It's like how many years or so uh, does that take b- before a lender will say you're essentially in default and you're um, free to go? So basically, uh, it's a very new business. So they just started four years ago, and they said that the longest that it took. Uh, one lender to give the money back, which they don't really call lender because it's not really a loan. Mm-hmm. They call it like merchant cash advances. So the longest it took uh, a company to give them their money back was three years. While they refused to say what their default rates were, they said it was lower than the sector average, which is roughly from 7 to 10%. And they said that after a while, if they realize, I think after four years probably, if they realize that the company doesn't have any revenues, they won't go after the company. So they won't go after the personal assets. They won't freeze the accounts. They won't chase you know, the owners down. That's how they say they're different from other players. Right, because it's like a merchant cash advance, correct? Because we've done a lot of reporting. Our team here at Business Week has done some fascinating uh, reporting and in-depth reporting um, about small small businesses who essentially get like a payday loan from an organization, the interest rates are sky high. It's almost impossible for you to be able to pay, to pay it. And there used to be a provision, I think, within the agreement yeah, that- Yeah, can go up to 400%. Right. But that you could also, I think, essentially kind of forfeit your business or something. Mm-hmm. Like there's, It's just unbelievable, some of the terms. This isn't that. This is much more on the up and up. They made a huge effort to differentiate themselves from that. So, like, from the time we started talking, they kept saying that they were nothing like that, that they are founders themselves. So, like, both the co-founders of ClearBank are, uh, have founded uh, several businesses before. Michelle herself has founded five businesses. So, she said she encountered a lot of uh, difficulties while trying to raise money. So, she said she basically did that just to make it easier for future founders. And a lot of the people who give money to clear banks, a lot of the limited partners are founders themselves. So they say, like, they're doing that, of course, because they uh, it's an investment. It's not philanthropy or anything like that. But they would do nothing like those other business to, you know, chase down uh, people who don't have any revenues to pay them back. And they're really looking to expand. Is it something like targeting 2,000 firms, $120 million in venture capital? Uh, yes. So, uh, up to, uh, I mean, they were founded, uh, they started four years ago, and they've given to companies $250 million so far. This year alone, they are planning to uh, do $1 billion in agreements. Yeah. So, that's like a, that's a huge jump. Uh, and they are planning to triple their workforce 
you. Well, it's inter- it's interesting, and you think about you know, especially for smaller businesses, right? And access to capital, it's a way of avoiding taking out a loan, adding on to your debt, um, but D- still being diluting able to make- the company shares yeah. as well, which is a really big deal. Right. Exactly. All right. Interesting story, Paolo, thank you, uh, Paula. Excuse me. Thank you so much. Paula Sambo is Canada corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us on the phone from our Toronto bureau. Check her out at Twitter at. Paula Sambo. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Vince Signorella, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 12 minutes left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up the trading week. And uh, as Charlie mentioned, we're waiting for some records on some of those major equity averages. It is time for the drive to the close. Quincy Crosby is Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial, joining us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Quincy, great to have you here with Vince and myself. Um, Interesting week, a ton of earnings, some deal flow, the economic news today, investors trying to make sense of it. I'm looking at the S&P 500. It's up 17% this year. It's up 10% from a year ago, even with that sell-off in December. Uh, I don't know. I'm getting a little nervous that all we see is kind of optimism and just to churn higher and higher. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the optimism isn't as as effusive as you would think, and that's also considered to be healthy because you want to have, you know, some worry in the market to keep this market moving higher. But the fact is there's been this tug of war going into this earnings season, Carol, regarding whether or not we're going to be in an earnings recession, which would be two quarters of negative growth, and worry that perhaps sometime this year we would be looking at the possibility of an economic recession. And what you're starting to see is the earnings are holding up for the most part, for the most part surprising up to the upside. And by the way, I know the bar was brought down so low so that we the beat rate was very is very good. But we're seeing revenue growth uh, climbing higher, not not for every uh, report, but but right. certainly climbing higher. And more important, I think, is the ne- the guidance, the negative guidance has been coming down. And so we're seeing a bit more optimism in, in the guidance. And that's positive. And in terms of the economic data, you know, you could take the release today. Yes, we can, you know, negate everything in it and say, oh, my gosh, it's, it's inventory buildup. It's uh, trade, and, and that's going to have a downdraft next quarter. But nonetheless, the core of that report shows that the economy continues to expand. So doesn't the um, doesn't the consumer worry at all? I mean, we, we've seen weakness in UPS and FedEx, um, and, you know, three of the major chip producers, Xilinx, um, Intel, uh, Texas Instruments, the real forward-looking uh, gauges or for, forward-looking uh, forecast for, uh, re, for retail sales and consumer spending, suggesting things potentially could slow down within the next six months and kind of slowly build a wall of worry maybe? Well, yeah, I mean, look, that, that would be positive. But what, what we are seeing, though, is that retail sales are actually, you know, ticking up. 
a bit. And we're seeing vehicle sales pick up. This, you know, next week we'll have a, a, a more of a re- stronger report on, on, on vehicle sales. But we heard from Ford. Uh, those numbers were pretty good. We're still buying SUVs. And, man, those Ford trucks are being picked up as they come off the uh, off the manufacturing um, process. And we expect to see the same from General Motors. So the other thing that we're seeing is yeah. housing sales. It's been mixed data, but overall, as wages continue to move higher, even inch higher, and uh, the unemployment rate continues to stay low, Americans, being very selective, are going out and, and buying houses. That's good news. Well, and it's interesting, just going back to GDP for a moment, if I may, consumer spending, which is, of course, our, uh, the biggest part of our con- economy, rose a slightly above forecast to 1.2%. Business investment cooled. Um, but still, that underlying demand in that GDP report was was weaker. So you're obviously, it sounds like Quincy, you're in the optimist camp, and I'm assuming that you think the economy is going to be okay this year, certainly in the United States, and that ultimately you think that means okay, an okay environment for corporate earnings, and that gives some momentum to the equity trade. Well, you know, I think you're going to see some of these sectors, as Vince pointed out. You saw the semis, which had led this market higher. It also led the market lower in 2018. And then, you know, as the pivot uh, mm-hmm. kicked in, the semis just went on its hair. And, yeah, we heard we heard some concern. The Intel, for example, uh, Texas, since went, you know, weaker uh, softening, um, softening expectations. But, yeah, they may pull back, but there are other parts of tech, you know, the um, uh, enterprise software. Uh, these areas, these components within tech should, should continue to do well. The FANGs are going to be reporting next week. If it's strong, uh, we'll probably see a little bit of profit taking, and we'll see money move into other parts of the market. Look, would I be hedged? Absolutely, because it's not a clear picture, but it's a picture that is not as bad as what we thought coming into the earnings season. And therefore, we would hedge the portfolio. You know, utilities were a great hedge. So were REITs. Uh, They they pulled back as this market just went completely cyclical. Uh, But, you know, maybe we want to hedge that portfolio. Another thing I want to add here is, what about if China really is stabilizing? Uh, the, the Chinese uh, authorities, both fiscal and monetary stimulus, 72 inputs into that economy. And the market is upset that they said we're, we're, we're holding off now. But, you know, stimulus works uh, with a pause. So if we're seeing a stabilization there and perhaps a beginning of stabilization in the eurozone, it'll be good for global trade. However, and this is important, is the strength of the U.S. dollar. That is putting pressure on emerging markets, Mm -hmm. and it could put pressure on uh, U.S. exporters. Good news today, though. I just have to throw this in because with the Russell 2000 is actually up higher than um, the other parts of the market. And that has been one of the areas we've seen weakness in, even with the, the, the large cap names moving higher. It's, a, it's good news that we're seeing uh, allocation going to the small and mid cap. That helps confirm, at least from the investor uh, perspective, that there's a belief that the economy is more solid than it uh, is 
week. And, and today's move is actually, I think, confirmation of that. Right. As the S&P 500 has continued to churn higher, we did see kind of a leveling off, some dips, but then some bounces back, but really kind of a leveling off in terms of the Russell. If you go back to kind of earlier in the year, I would say mm-hmm. about early February, late February, I mean, mid-February, uh, we're kind of back at those levels. So there was some concern about what that indicated, because that can be certainly a leading indicator in terms of some of those domestic con- uh, companies here in the U.S. Well, well, ab- absolutely. And, you know, in terms of the financials, we always talk mm-hmm. about the financials, and we always say we need them to participate in a rally. And then when they don't, we, we sort of forget about what we said. But we're seeing the financials actually participate in this rally. Uh, the 10-year yield came down a bit, but what we're looking at is a steepening of the yield curve, which is very healthy, and that's healthy for the financials. And it's important to see them participate at least somewhat in, um, in, in, in the rally, because you could say if the financials don't participate, how strong can this rally and viable can this rally actually be? All right. Quincy, we got to run. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Uh, Quincy Crosby, Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial, joining us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.